good evening, folks, and welcome to the Daily Evolver Live. I'm Jeff Salzman. It's Tuesday, January 13th, 2015, and I am coming to you, as always, from my home in Boulder, Colorado. I'm here tonight with Brett Walker, again, as always, who is managing the call in the kitchen. Hey, Brett, how you doing tonight? Hey, good. Welcome, everybody. Thank you all for tuning in. Uh, I hope you are well tonight, wherever you are, or this morning, or whatever time it might be for you. It's been an eventful week, of course, and tonight we're going to look at the dramatic events that have been transpiring over the last week in France. And of course, we're talking about the massacre at the satirical magazine Charlie Hebdo, um, which was just last Wednesday, less than a week ago. And then on Sunday, the largest demonstration in modern French history, over a million people on the streets of Paris alone and in other cities as well. Uh, Leaders from all over the world, arm in arm. And oops, I am going to have to give a very rare demerit to my superhero integral president, Barack Obama, for not sending anybody to the Paris March. He screwed up, okay? Let's just drop it. (laughs) I'm pleased to have tonight uh, a live guest, and our guest tonight is Amr Abdel Nasser, who has become one of the leading voices in the integral community uh, speaking on Muslim affairs. He was raised a conservative Muslim himself in North Africa and Middle East and in Malaysia. He's the author of The Future of Islam in the Age of New Media and of My Islam, How Fundamentalism Stole My Mind and Doubt Freed My Soul. I've been having an email conversation with him on phone as well, and I find him to be just delightful and smart and really insightful. And so I'm happy to have him on, and and, and, uh, Amir will be joining us in a a little bit. But before that, uh, I want to give a word to our sponsor, uh, a shout-out to IntegralLife.com, who hosts this podcast and where I originated the podcast four years ago. And IntegralLife.com is the main web portal for all cutting-edge integral thinking. They feature Ken Wilber's latest work, part of which is a long conversation he had with Amir uh, that is posted on the site. Ken and Amir, a very uh, fascinating conversation. Uh, This podcast, The Daily Evolver, is available also on iTunes and Stitcher. And of course, it appears along with additional postings and commentary on my blog, dailyevolver.com. I often recommend that if you're New to integral theory, if you just want to follow along with a couple of the more important maps, you can find them on a link that came with the email that you got that was reminding you of the call. And actually tonight, I would recommend it because we're going to be talking particularly about levels of development. And that's the really the integral lens that I want to bring to the events in France. Now, uh, Integral theory, one of the great things about it is it encourages us to take multiple perspectives on things and to resist our inclination that we contract around any one perspective, the one that's most familiar or most comfortable or makes the most sense to us. And I often compare integral theory to a Google map. We can click in to see more detail 
to see that what we thought was flat uh, has mountains and plains and texture. And we can click out to see more context, to see how the territory we're investigating relates to ever larger circles of territories. And this really just enables us to spot patterns and see the territory more clearly so that we can think more clearly and act more clearly and bring more wisdom, compassion, and skillful means to whatever it is that we're dealing with. So that's our goal here tonight. And tonight, uh, the maps of development, the levels of development would be most useful. Uh, spiral Dynamics uh, has the uh, levels of development. Uh, uh, Ken Wilber's Aqua model will be using Ken's chart. And what both of them reveal is that the clash between the pre-modern Muslim world, and not all of the Muslim world is pre-modern, but there's a significant center of gravity that is. And pre-modern means traditional, warrior, tribal. That the conflict between that world and the modern secular world of Western Europe, France, United States, the developed world, reveals a, a wider array of developmental levels as virtually anything on the planet. And most of them are what we call first-tier memes. And that means that they basically hate each other. <laughs> they, they just don't get each other. The traditionalists, the modernists, the postmodernists, they're all, you know, struggling for the ascendancy of their own mono perspectives. And again, what we get at Integral is the uh, really just the capacity of consciousness to see and hold even conflicting and warring perspectives at the same time. So let's walk through it. So when we look at the events in France, we certainly will start with the warrior stage of development, the, what we call the red stage of development. And the warrior stage is marked by many things. But one of them is, particularly in the spiritual realm, in the spiritual line of development, in the religious line of development, is a sense of magic. Uh, that's, it, it, it really maintains from the, in, the uh, uh, archaic and the, in the tribal stages, which are really full of magic and spirits and, and you know, brother bear and sister moon and that sort of thing. Uh, at warrior, it becomes more refined. You have power gods. Uh, basically superheroes, uh, but still, the world is infused with magic. And magic is really something that all religions seek to deal with, because it was the religion of most of humanity, for most of history. And uh, it's still the core and heart of religious experience. And I think back on even my own development, and, and many of you may relate to this, but I think back on when my religion was magic, when I was, you know, eight, nine, 10, maybe 11, 12 years old. And I remember back at church camp, sitting in the evening with a full moon, a, a campfire, sitting on the edge of the riverbank, and we're singing Kumbaya. Kumbaya, my Lord. Kumbaya, come by here, my Lord, come by here. And 
it's all of us kids and there's this impossibly cute 17 year old camp counselor with the shaggy blonde hair playing the guitar and I digress. <laughs> but really, it was a beautiful relig religious experience and an experience of presence and magic and the love of God. And this is strong in all religions. I mean, all religions work with it in one way or the other because it's so powerful and it's what human beings want so deeply. And so, you know, we have it singing, singing a church. Uh, we've had it at a Buddhist retreat where we're sitting in meditation and we're chanting together after, you know, spending weeks together in meditation. There's a wonderful sense of the world lighting up as if it were stage lit and it is enchanted. And that world, that, that enchanted world is my real home. And I am safe there and I am on the lap of God. And this is a very, very powerful stage of development and it you can't talk people out of it i mean it's very very difficult to talk people into a, a more secular view that really requires that they let go of that enchantment and realize that they are actually just some accidental result of protoplasm evolution uh, and we're hurtling on a rock through a meaningless void. And that's a tough sell to people who are living in an enchanted world. And for a lot of Islam, this is very strong. In fact, I'm learning about Islam more and more. I mean, everybody is, aren't they? And I was talking actually to Amir a couple days ago, I guess. And he was talking about, and Amir, you may want to um, expound upon this when, when we turn things over to you, but that this is very strong in Islam, this, this religious practice of being in a mosque and the chanting, very melodic chanting, swaying. And there's a big evocation of spirit that, you know, when they walk out, the world is alive. And when they hear the vocalists calling them to prayer from the minarets five times a day, uh, the world is alive with God. So that's a lot of what we're dealing with. And as integralists, we want to feel into that and feel into how important and, and beautiful that is and vivid and exciting and, and, yes, sexy that that is so that we don't wonder why people would still bother to believe it. So then we move to the next stage that we can see playing out very, very clearly in this, um, you know, the fault lines between the Muslim and secular world is the level of traditionalism. And this is the level of myth. And this is where a new spiritual re revelation comes online that really wants to organize and civilize the magic realm. And organize it does. Um, this is the age of the axial religions, Buddhism, uh, Christianity, Islam, came online at, these, at this stage is about 2,000 to 2,500 years ago. And the idea is that there is a transcendent realm. In the Western religions, it's the realm of God. It's a heavenly realm. Uh, in Buddhism, it's nirvana, a, a state of absolute liberation in contrast to these, you know, corrupted world, or in the West, it's the sinful world. And this is where 
true truth resides. And so at this point, we get the Ten Commandments. It's no longer okay to go steal your neighbor's wife. The idea of revenge and blood feuds is taken off the table. This is where God says, vengeance is mine. And you're not supposed to worry about it. Your job is to live a faithful life, be a good Muslim, be a good Christian, a good Buddhist, a good citizen, and I'll take care of the rewards and punishment in the next life. And that is really a very, very powerful organizing principle that enables humanity to move forward. You can't have people running around having their own individual spiritual realizations or, or working their own magic that has to be distributed into larger systems and civilized and organized. And that's what traditionalism does. So we see this um, uh, in the Muslim world where there's a mix, and this is the nature of evolution, is that people are at one stage in one line of development and then another stage in another line of development. And we have people who have this power God mentality, uh, sort of a warrior mentality, and they are warring for God in heaven. And this is the holy warrior, the jihadist, and this is the, where they are and that in the stages of development. So again, at this stage, uh, especially as traditionalism becomes more and more entrenched and more and more successful, the idea is you follow the rules. And one of the rules is no blasphemy. Um, in, in Islam, there's a, a certain a quirk in a way. It's, there's a prohibition against creating images of Muhammad. And this is part of, again, traditionalism's job to wring out idol worship. So we don't want any kind of you know, imagery or anything that's going to distract us or that we're going to invest spiritual powers in, which is what, of course, we did in red, you know, like crazy, worshiping the golden calf all day. So that's out. No images of Muhammad, no idol worship. This is also true in Christianity. I mean, over here in Christendom, of course, we're painting the ceiling with God and Jesus and all of that. But there's still that tension that idols and magic not infect the uh, transcendent organization of traditional religion. Now, at its best, traditionalism is about home and hearth. You know, there's the grandparents, there's the parents, there's the children, everybody living together, supporting each other. Everybody knows who they are. Everybody knows what their role is. Uh, we really don't get identity neurosis till later in modernity and post-modernity. And uh, at its worst, as I said, it's uh, this sort of amber, this traditionalism infected with red warrior culture. So we get this militant, triumphalist religiosity, uh, holy warriors. Uh, we also notice this in, uh, just as an aside, in North Korea. Um, North Korea is at a traditionalist stage of religious development. For them, the god is the Kim family. And so to see their leader ridiculed, as, as in the Seth Rogen movie, The Interview, is offensive to not only the vast majority of North Koreans, most of whom will never see this, but also, strangely enough, I was reading an article about defectors, and they said they don't like it either. You know, there's a power 
to these images that really just run deep into the whole dignity and honor of the of, of the country and the culture. All right, so then let's look at how this is showing up in the modern stage of development. First of all, it's happening in a modern culture. This is one of the things that is most noticeable about the Charlie Hebdo killings. And it wasn't that they were political, and it certainly wasn't the number of people who were killed. Uh, I think it was 11 or 13 in the final analysis. As Nick Kristof wrote in the New York Times, the Charlie Hebdo murders weren't even the most lethal terror attack on the planet last Wednesday. There was a car bomb in Yemen that killed 37 people. So the real story here is that the violence happened in a modern world space, in the capital of a, a leading developed country. And we modernists who live in this world space all over the planet are roused to our bones because we're still human beings. We're still security machines. That's what we're you know, sort of hardwired to do is to be maximally safe. And these killings point out a couple things that are actually contradictory, but one of them is how vulnerable we are. Our cities are free. Anybody can go anywhere, officially at least. We have millions of people coming and going, infrastructures unguarded, shopping malls, city squares, offices, all unguarded. Uh, and yet modern technology, guns, bombs, pathogens, instructions on the internet to use all of these things that are deployed or can be deployed by anybody who gets their hands on them. And that means sometimes the wrong hands. And, you know, as they say, all we have really to fear in the modern world is a madman with a gun. And that's modern weaponry in pre-modern hands. I talk about it all the time. So that is, you know, something we're on guard against. Uh, on the other hand, this incident also shows how remarkably safe we are. The percentage of violence of any kind, really, is at an all-time low worldwide, and certainly in the developed countries. Charlie Hebdo is really less a story about the crazy, violent elements in our society, but more a story about how small a part of our world the crazy, violent parts have become by any historic standard. And yet that doesn't mean we don't work night and day to drive it even lower, and that's why we got so worked up about it. That's why it galvanizes the attention of the world. Uh, I think of it sometimes as the pain versus gain ratio. As we develop, it takes less and less pain to give us more and more gain in terms of you know, both cultural and individual development. Last week, I talked about how Nazi Germany conducted an industrial genocide of six million people one of the most horrific things that ever happened on the face of the earth. And today, they are one of the two or three most civilized, intelligent, pacified, industrious nations on earth. The most admired nation on earth. It's astonishing. And does one create the other? And I'd say yes, that one of the engines of evolution, one of the ways up the spiral of de development, is the realization of the horror of one's own actions. And this is uh, that there's a better way forward, there's new insight, new wisdom, and an ever larger circle of compassion. That is, this is built into our development. Couple things, I'm gonna go a little quicker here. We are one of the most open societies, but we're also one of the most surveilled. 
So there are video cameras everywhere. We watched a lot of this action. The action on the street, we could watch. There were films of it. And that's true throughout cities, not only in terms of official cameras from businesses and government, but everybody's carrying one around in their pocket with their smartphone. And so there's metadata on phone records, travel finance, emails, internet searches, and all of these flow into these programs that identify red flags. And I'm for the surveillance state. I think it's working. I don't worry about it because one of the things that's true about modernity is that once a culture reaches a stable center of gravity of modernity, they no longer have any interest in subjugating their citizens. So most people are willing to take the deal of being under surveillance if uh, they can continue to be safe against the no shortage of number of people who would be delighted to do harm. And it's astonishing how few actually succeed. So anyway, just a couple other things about what comes online in the modern stage of development. And the key thing in terms of the interior of, of consciousness is at modernity, there is a differentiation of the values spheres. So goodness, truth, and beauty in pre-modern cultures are all fused together. The religion is the state. The art serves the state religion. At modernity, we realize that these three domains of human reality can be separate and they can live in their own realms that can't be colonized by the other. And this is a huge achievement of interior modernity. Uh, and it's you know, really what the Reformation and the Enlightenment was about. And, uh, you know, one of the great themes of the Enlightenment was remember the cruelties, the line by Voltaire, where, you know, remember the Inquisition, remember the cruelties of the church and the state before we realize that actually sovereignty resides in each of us as individuals. And that's, again, the, the great, huge consciousness achievement of modernity. And this is one of the things that Charlie Hebdo was really fighting for. And it was, it's interesting to see the interview with one of the new editors, would you want this job, of Charlie Hebdo, uh, where she was talking about that they will continue to fight for the spirit of liberty and the spirit of blasphemy. And she spoke of the spirit of blasphemy as if it were a great good thing. And I really got kind of chills from that. I mean, I realized that, you know, in a modern world, it's actually art's job to ridicule the power structures. Just as, you know, science and religion fight their battles on what's true and what isn't. So at the integral stage of development, we want to have it all. We want to have the passion and honor that comes with the Red Warrior stage. We want the faithfulness and obedience that comes with traditionalism. We want the creativity and self-expression of modernity. And we want what's next, which is the, the sensitivity and pluralism of post-modernity. And 
you know, people talk about is there something that's just sort of inherently defective about Islam that it's still the, those backward cultures on, on earth, you know, all told center of gravity wise. And I don't think so. My take is that development trumps religion every time and that there are plenty of ways for people to read the same book and just emphasize different things. And there is, are many teachings in uh, the Quran or in, in, in Islamic uh, doctrine about mercy, forgiveness, forbidding coercion of religion. I mean, there's actually no laws against apostasy or blasphemy or making images of Muhammad in the Quran. I mean, they're in other texts. But people will continue to read their religions according to the stage of development that they're at. And the stage of development, again, trumps the religion every time. And there is absolutely a green Islam. We're seeing it practiced in the United States uh, and in different communities around the world. And I think I'll stop there. Lots more to say, and we'll see what we get into. But at this point, I do want to welcome online Amir Ahmed Nasser. Amir was raised a Muslim in North Africa and Malaysia. He's the blogger, uh, author of My Islam, How Fundamentalism Stole My Mind and Doubt Freed My Soul. And he's a student of integral theory. He has political asylum in Canada, uh, has got here about a year ago, and is altogether a delightful young man. He's joining us tonight from his home in Vancouver. Hello, Amir. Hello, Jeff, and thank you for having me. This was good stuff you that you're getting into. I was listening for the past 15 minutes, and uh, I got to say, I fully agree. Great articulation. Yeah. Thank you very much. Is there anything, just basically th thinking about where we are in the discussion at this stage, anything that I got wrong or anything that's just front of mind that you'd like to share? Um, I think you're spot on that there are many forms of, you know, sort of postmodern pluralistic Islam being practiced right now here in North America, um, even in, you know, in some communities in France. The trouble, however, is, is, you know, how Islam is practiced in the rest of the world outside of liberal democracies in, in many countries which are still very authoritarian and have political systems that are very pathological, which then, of course, influences how religion is understood and conceptualized and internalized within those societies. You know, religion ends up having a very authoritarian strain. And that's really where uh, a lot of the challenge lies. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, we've talked a little bit about this before, that this pull of the spirit is very, very powerful in Islam. And you actually told a story uh, in a conversation you had with Terry Patton on Sunday in his Beyond Awakening series. It was just wonderful. I would encourage people, to, I'll link to it on the, on the site. And you talked about the sort of flavor of that in Islam. And a particular experience that you had that was, uh, you know, I think a, an integral reawakening, an integral uh, inflow of spirit uh, that happened to you in a mosque in Canada. And I wondered if you share a little bit about that with us here tonight. 
Yeah. The, the, the experience actually happened in a mosque in Istanbul in, in Turkey, um, not here oh, in Canada. Sorry. Right. It was in Istanbul in Turkey. At that time, this was back in 2009. It was actually May 2009 to be very specific. At that time, I would say that I was, you know, more or less agnostic. I wouldn't say atheistic, let's say agnostic and very anti-theist, very anti-theist. And I was extremely resentful towards religion and just thought that the whole thing was an abomination. So there I was on my way to Turkey. And for many, many months, many months, close to a year, I had just been feeling a lot of pain and experiencing a lot of emptiness. And, you know, there was a call, there was a certain sense of nostalgia to, to embrace that, that feeling of transcendence. But I felt that if I ever stepped into a mosque or any kind of house of worship, that I would get in there, I would get lured, I would get seduced, and then my mind would be caged within the dogmas, the doctrines, and all of that. And so I was very, very, very resentful towards those things, and I did not want anything to do with them. And I felt that I just had to toughen up. You know, it's like just toughen up. What the hell? You don't have to have all these warm, fuzzy feelings. That's just garbage. It's nonsense. That's how religion tries to seduce you. That's how it tries to bring you in and then it cages you with all of, all of its, you know, within all of its oppressive structures. So no, 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 hell no. And then I was on my way to Turkey and it just so happened that it was the first time on that flight that I was reading my first integral book. I had read a few articles because, you know, two friends recommended, um, you know, some, some stuff by, by Ken Wilbur, some stuff even by Terry Patton that I had gotten a hold of at the time. But, and, and even Carter Phipps, by the way, who, whose work I really enjoyed, and I know you, you know him, you know each other quite well. But I never really read a book from start to finish. So I was on that flight, and I was reading The Marriage of Sense and Soul by Ken Wilbur. By the time I arrived in Istanbul, Turkey, something had just changed. Um, and, and I felt it viscerally. There was this, this feeling of, of relaxation, of calmness. Something had just shifted. I, I can't even describe it and put it into words until this day. It's just, it was bizarre. It's almost like I smoked a joint, uh, you know, <laughs> but, but it was a book. <laughs> That's and, yeah, it, it's like for the first time, not knowing what the hell just happened. So there I am, I'm in Istanbul, and as I mentioned to you, you know, I, I, was, in, I was there to attend the, a special workshop on how to, how to overcome online censorship and how to use encryption tools because, you know, as a digital activist at the time who was very engaged in online discourse, we, we really needed to use these tools to, to avoid detection by authoritarian states in the Middle East and so on. At the end of that workshop, after, I think it was a three-day workshop, the participants wanted to go to the, the Blue Mosque, the Sultan Ahmed Mosque, which is about you know, 400 years old in Istanbul, right opposite of the Hagia Sophia. I went there and I was reluctant. I, and I wasn't sure if I really wanted to go in and you know, those feelings kind of came up. It's like, whoa, 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 here I am gonna get seduced and lured in again, hell no. But I said to myself, you know what, screw it. All you're doing is you're just going in as a tourist with your camera and that's it. Just, that's it, just a tourist, and you're going to wait for your friends. You're going to snap some pictures. They're going to come, and you're going to get the hell out of there. So I told them I'm going to be waiting for you at that spot, and I sat down by the window at the spot, and coincidentally, the prayer had just started. And the imam, I mean, he, his, 
his voice, you, you could tell he came from a very deep, heartfelt place. He wasn't one of those ludicrous religious leaders shouting at the top of his lungs, down with America, and, you know, quoting verses about, you know, the infidels and so on and so forth. If anything, it, it was just nothing but gratitude emanating from that man. And you could tell he had a very big heart. And the dome above us, the mosque's dome, did the rest. It did the rest. It amplified his voice. It amplified the voices of all the worshipers behind him when they finished their prayers. And they engaged in something called tasbih. And I have a hard time translating that exactly into English. But tasbih really has, you know, it, it, it has a lot to do with, with praising the greatness of God with, with a sense of deep love and, and, and gratitude and appreciation. However, there's also a certain kind of quality that I haven't experienced in other religions when I went to their houses of worship. And that other additional quality is, is a sense of awe, as if you're sitting before, you know, you're, you're standing before a throne. Um, and, and you acknowledge the power that is there in front of you. So it's not fear, it's not intimidation, but it's just a sense of awe you know, of this huge, massive, great grandness that is before you. And it's mixed with love and devotion. And it's just, it's, it's, it's all merged together. It's a very different quality. And so they're in their tasbih and they're repeating it. Subhanallah, 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 subhanallah. Alhamdulillah, 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 alhamdulillah. Allahu Akbar. And so on and so on and so on, over and over. And I couldn't help it. I just couldn't help it. I really wanted to resist. I did not want to have any part to do with it. I wanted to get out of there, and I was waiting for my friends, but I just couldn't help it. I got so lost into it, I started swaying back and forth as I was sitting on the ground far away from them, and I could feel the reverb in my body, in my bones. And I got lost. I got lost in the moment, and I, my eyes were closed, and it just felt like I had gone to another place for a very long time. And finally, when a friend tapped me on my shoulder, I had tears streaming down my face, and something had shifted. I had, I had finally understood at that moment that the word submission, which I was really also you know, resentful towards, this idea of submission in Islam, submitting to some you know, grand, supreme, authoritarian power and being subservient to it. I just hated that idea. I understood at that moment that it was, it was submission in the form of surrender, willful surrender, so that you just let go of ego and you surrender your heart to the grand mystery of life and, and just trust, trust and let go and have faith. Not faith in the doctrines, not faith that Jesus was born you know, of a virgin or that Muhammad you know, flew on a magic horse through the seven skies and went to heaven. Not faith in those ideas, but just faith, a sense of trust and loving and, and, and grace all infused together. And, yeah. and, and, and I was in awe. And the reason I was able to allow that and internalize that and experience that is because of what I had read in the book, The Marriage of Sense and Soul. I understood that spiritual experience doesn't mean, you know, you have to be irrational and doesn't mean that you're going to allow yourself to embrace woo-woo ideas. It doesn't mean that you're going to be weak and pathetic 
you know, that you have to toughen up that. No, these experiences are precious and they're important and we should encourage them and that they can be experienced in a way that has a basis in reality and without any sort of restrictive doctrines, you know, that, that, yeah. that are you know, mythological and so on. Yeah, and you didn't lose your rationality. And, you know, this is a, a spiritual integration that uh, is really a marker for integral consciousness to have really all of it online. Yeah. I love how you sort of transmit the uh, sort of spiritual state potency of Islam and the, and the, the, the sort of the, the atmosphere of the mosque. And, you know, we know how powerful that is. And yet, at the same time, we're noticing, and you talk about this a lot, is that there's also a pull to modernity, particularly in the younger people, which is the majority of Muslims. And, you know, anybody who has an internet really has access to this whole other world as well. And that is causing, uh, you know, a lot of movement in the, again, particularly young people. And I uh, was astonished that you were talking about the popularity of people like Eckhart Tolle in, uh, in the Muslim world and, and the book, The Secret. And so give us a little insight into what's really bubbling up uh, from the younger people. Yeah, absolutely. Well, a huge, huge trend, and I think trend is a word that kind of minimizes it, but, but something big that's really emerging, it's just the change in the media landscape that has happened over the past two decades. And that includes satellite television. I'm not just talking about the internet and social media. I'm also talking about satellite TV, because that's how it started. You know, take, for instance, the, the series Friends. Friends was extremely popular in the Arab world, and it came subtitled. It was subtitled in Arabic, and so people could watch it and they could read the subtitles. And it was really interesting, you know, when, when, you, when you had certain episodes in which Ross and Monica would kind of um, sort of express their Jewish faith. And for some viewers, they're like, wait a second, they're, they're Jewish characters, how huh? interesting. But then you would just kind of go along and laugh. And what those things did, and, you know, things also like the NBA and, you know, the uh, Oprah Winfrey show, American pop culture in general, when, when that started being broadcast and, and now we can, we can actually accept it and, and receive it through satellite TV, a lot of people started asking questions like, wait a second, why do they get to live like that? Why do they get to do these things? Oh, wait, look at this channel that's coming from this other country. Ooh, let's tune in. So people began to just understand that the world lives differently, that people have uh, a certain kind of individuality that they can express and that they want to express too. But then, of course, with social media, now it's a two-way conversation. It's not just information being broadcasted at you. You can go and seek information. You can go and get it. And so in Saudi Arabia, as I was mentioning, Saudi Arabia is where you will find the highest consumption of YouTube per capita in the world. Highest consumption of YouTube per capita in the world is in Saudi Arabia. Interesting. These are facts that are, that are, that are you know, online. You can go check them out, all verified. The explosion in Twitter usage in Saudi Arabia after the Arab Spring, I think it exploded by 3,000%. It's in the thousands, okay? And I believe the figure is 3,000%, somewhere around there. You can also go check it online. There is now a virtual public sphere. 
that we just have not had before. And, you know, this consumption of YouTube, for instance, the highest level of usage of YouTube is among young Saudi women who view education videos. They love education videos. And these are, again, these are stats that are available. As you mentioned, Eckhart Tolle, uh, The Secret, and also especially, especially The Alchemist by Puello Coelho has been translated hmm. to Arabic. And, and th these books are selling like crazy to the extent that there has been some discussion about, you know, banning them, especially The Secret. It, ca it caused a lot of controversy, as it did to an extent in the United States. But, you know, yeah. there was discussion of, you know, of, of potentially banning those books from being sold. You know, oh, they're corrupting young people's minds, and, you know, they're getting young people to worship God's creation, the universe, instead of watching, you know, instead of worshiping God himself, and so on and so forth. They took that word, the universe, kind of literally. So it's, it's fascinating. All these things are happening. There's huge cultural change. There is huge social change, but it's beneath the surface. The reason we don't hear much about it is because those things haven't really permeated into the political sphere because the, if they do, then the, you know, the, the risks are, are, are just major. And, and we've seen what happened after the initial phase of the Arab Spring. The Islamist party you know, attempted to go in because they could self-organize better than us, the youth. We knew how to play protests. We knew how to mobilize, but we did not know how to get together our act and, and actually self-organize into political parties with a platform and so on and so forth. So we lost in that. The Islamists took over and then they polarized society so much because they wanted to shove Islam down everybody's throat and they wanted to Islamize society very aggressively, very quickly. And then the military came in in the case of Egypt, in Tunisia, you know, the Islamist party freaked out about what happened in Egypt. So they retreated and now Tunisia is actually in a really good um, track. You know, all of these things are taking place. Now, is this cultural change among the youth, among young people who have access to the Internet, you know, their smartphones and so on, is this cultural change going to translate into liberal political institutions? That is a big question mark. I think what's really missing right now is that, you know, we have succeeded in deconstructing what's going on. A lot of young people now understand that we are getting a very bad deal. And I was telling you in our previous call that when I discovered the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and I read it online, I was furious. I was angry. I'm like, why the hell didn't I get taught about this? These are rights. I'm actually getting robbed of my own rights. So these aren't privileges that some people are just lucky to have you know, like a nice Gucci bag, and I don't have a Gucci bag. Wait, wait, so I was born with a Gucci bag and somebody freaking stole it from me? Like, you, you screw right. the whole world. Why didn't I get taught about this? People understand that they're getting a bad deal. That wasn't the case before, especially for us young people. So we know that, and we have deconstructed things. The challenge is how can we reconstruct things in a way so that we can indigenize our own liberty, indigenize our own conceptions of freedom, so that we can then build political institutions that, you know, accommodate the religious sensibilities of people and so on and so forth. Because truth, truth be told, Jeff, um, it's, it's not going to be easy to create political institutions where, you know, blasphemy is a right. It's, it's just, right. it's not culturally there. And so there are certain things that are just going to be different. And that is the case even when you look at France and America. France's conception of secularism 
is aggressive. It's an active form of secularism that actively seeks to secularize society, where the American model, which I prefer, is more neutral. And then look at democracy in Japan, where, you know, even though you have democracy and institutions and everything, culturally speaking, there's still a lot of reluctance to question people in authority. And we've seen it after the Fukushima crisis. So each country, each society has to figure out how to indigenize liberty and conceptions of freedom and have their own forms of modernity. And that's really the next stage right now, because the deconstruction yeah. has happened among the youth, and we know we're getting a bad deal. Well, and, and that is, a, you know, an appropriate stage of development. As Ken points out, we thought about modernity for 100 years before the French Revolution. People talked about it and wrote letters, and, you know, and that was, it's going to happen a lot quicker uh, now in the, in the world of the internet. And and, and so forth. Yeah. And also that every culture does it with their own flavor. And it's going to be fascinating yeah. Yeah. to watch the what is Arab modernity look like. And uh, yep. that's a beautiful world where Arabness and Persianness and Islam is online as well as Chineseness and Russianness and Americanness. Uh, in ways that are vivid and free and liberated. And that's this part of the sacred world to come, I think. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> well, Amir, I really appreciate yeah. you coming on. I see we're five minutes over. You, you wanted to uh, be off by a quarter to. So uh, thank you for hanging in. And uh, you can hear Amir uh, in far more depth in his conversation with Ken Wilbur on Integral Life and uh, an hour-and-a-half call with uh, Terry Patton uh, on Sunday, which covered some of the same ground and more uh, on his Beyond Awakening series. And I'll link to both on the site. So again, Amir, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me, Jeff. Really appreciate it. We'll stay in touch. All righty. Bye-bye. Thank you. Cheers. So we have another 10 minutes or so here. If anybody has any questions or comments, please press one, and I would be happy to hear you out. In the meantime, I really just want to hammer a little bit the opportunities that integral consciousness and an integral view of these things brings to the party. What the evolutionary view which is the integral view, sees, is that every stage of development is supposed to be there. A four-year-old is not a defective six-year-old, is not a defective 12-year-old and 18-year-old and so forth. That every stage has its gifts. Traditionalism, warrior stage, they all have their gifts, they all have their pains. And as individuals and cultures, we have to grow through each of them. And we can be more or less healthy at any given stage. And that's really, you know, what we want to support is really health at every stage of development. We see that in individuals. You know, we see teenagers who work out their teenage angst and impulses violently. And we see those who work them out with art or video games, or performance, or rap. We see people who work them out in sports, or clubs, or different kinds of competitions. And 
That's healthy versus unhealthy. And as parents, you know, of teenagers and children, we want to steer them and protect them from themselves and do the best we can to help them be healthy at every stage. And that's what we're called to do collectively, too. The more developed countries and cultures really find themselves in a little bit of a parenting role uh, as we work with these uh, earlier stages of development. Developed cultures are more responsible for undeveloped cultures uh, than, than vice versa. I can feel the green flags fly as I say something like that. Uh, the, 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 you know, that how dare I assume that Western cultures are the parents and Muslim cultures are the children. And I appreciate that green or post-modernity, which is so, you know, aggressively anti-hierarchical because they saw the, you know, horrors that were created by the ethnocentric hierarchies that came before, that, you know, they are very suspicious of this kind of thinking and point out any regression into ethnocentrism or exclusionary anything. And that is, um, that's Green's job, and I appreciate it. I think it ought to be online in this discussion. It ought to be online in my own psyche. Uh, so do we have any questions, Brad, or did we lose? We do, yeah. We do? Okay. So what do we have, Joe? Yeah, you can start with Joe. All right, Joe. We'll start with you. And um, uh, excuse, we're scrambling a little bit here, but I think it's working. So welcome, Joe. Uh, thanks, Jeff. Yeah, I was thinking about something that you had said on an earlier call, uh, especially when Amir was talking about how in the transition, I think, from traditional to modern, you kind of have to lose your religion. Yeah. Do you remember saying that? Yes, indeed. Okay. Um, and I, I'm wondering how true or how literal that really is, because I feel I myself never really had to go through a loss. Although when I was um, in school, I used to very deliberately avoid philosophy discussions. <laughs> you know, nihilistic at, at the time when I was, <laughs> you know, in those classes, and, and I just yeah. chose to deliberately sidestep them. But... You know, the, that, the um, expression that Amr gave of, of being in the mosque and that, you know, that connection to God, I'm, I'm not sure that you really have to lose that mm -hmm. on your way to, to higher states and stages because, you know, it, it, you know, to my mind, it is a valid you know, uh, state. Yeah. I agree with you, Joe. I mean, I think clearly that's your experience, and there are many ways forward in the complexity of human beings and, you know, times, times and places uh, are unfathomable. And so there are all kinds of ways to move up through these stages of development and to hold on to a certain faith and a certain knowledge of God uh, or whatever, however you put that, uh, in, as, as one moves in through modernity, I think is absolutely possible. And I think we uh, appreciate your testimony to that effect. Uh, and one last hand raised here, Mark. Mark, what do you have to say? 
Well, I just wanted to agree with Joe that <clears throat> about the there are a very small number of people who held on to their religion through their college years. And most of the ones that I know are Roman Catholics who went to Catholic mm -hmm. universities. Yeah, I think yeah, I think that's a good good point. And I realize how small a number that that is, but I do think that we integralists ought to keep in mind that not everybody loses religion when they hit orange. Well, when I think about my friends who kept their contact with the religion through college, and, and you're right, they were Catholics when I think about it, um, what they stayed in touch with was the ritual, sort of the numinous the experience, the feeling, the felt sense of their religion. Intellectually, I don't know, you know, that they, they maybe ignored it or explained it away or whatever. But the Catholic religion does, and in Islam too, apparently, offers that more somatic uh, way of staying in touch that might get us through our secularization. Uh, so yeah, that's an interesting thing. I appreciate it. Okay, I see M&A, yay! M&A Carey, how are you, dear? Hi, Jeff, I'm, I'm good. This is a wonderful, wonderful program. Um, Thank I just you. wanted to uh, chime in with some observations. I mean, I've been glued, as you can imagine, to all these events. One of the important things, I think, is... M&A, can I just stop you for a second and say, M&A has been on the show a number of times, and you know we rely on her insight. She was uh, is raised in Turkey, lived in the United States, lived in both countries for many years, and uh, brings a real first-person perspective to these things. So with that said, M&A, it's all yours. That, that, that it's really important to think about the center of gravity of uh, lower left center of gravity of where religion is. I mean, Ken talks about how folks have been now reinterpreting Christianity in the context of orange, in the context of green, and what's really missing, what I get from Emir's account, is that that center of gravity is at best at traditionalist and perhaps at warrior in the Is Islamic cultures around the world. Mm -hmm. So that yeah. when there is that kind of a theocratic break it's harder to to move in and to retain religion as you move through orange and you know emir comes back with his somatic experience i thought that was such a wonderful account but one yeah. very interesting thing i noticed i just wanted to share with you guys after these events in in paris was you know in turkey also um politicians responded with this is not the real islam islam is religion of peace etc and, you know, these kinds of remarks make a lot of sense in the, in the West because we're all fearful that, that warrior cultures within the West are now going to start acting against Muslims, regular old pious Muslims, so that these are always underlined as part of the dominant mode of discourse. To my utter amazement, the leading edge in Turkey, in newspaper columns and whatnot, basically responded by saying, this is bullshit, this is not enough, you have to say something stronger. So what is real Islam? Hmm. Explain to us what it wow. really is. And I, you know, at first I was like, oh my God, where are we going? I, wasn't ex I mean, because the leading edge is green. 
But what this seems to have sparked, at least in the news, some newspaper columns, is a theological discussion of, you know, in terms of the history of Islam, where, where, what do we take, what do we not take, how do we reinterpret the theological uh, doctrine in order to actually make it relevant for today. So this has me actually very, very hopeful Though I suspect this is, you know, just one spurt, we're going to have to, we're going to need a lot more as, as these books and stories get reinterpreted by those very young folks now who've moved into Orange in hmm. the Middle East and Islamic world. Yeah. So you're saying that this situation in France really has sparked a new unprecedented uh, conversation and exploration uh, within the the uh, Turkish culture, within within Turkish culture, this yeah. is the yeah. second round for Turkish culture because actually there was quite a bit of this when an Islamist or Islamic government was actually using a lot of green rhetoric. We've talked about this on this program. In fact, now it's take, Turkey has taken a huge cultural step backward on that count. Uh, yeah. But this is a second spurt now that that um, people from the equivalent of divinity schools have began to talk. Let's see if it will continue. I'm really, really interested. Yeah. If, no, this, you know, if these murders are not Islam, but this is what seems to be, we be, seem to be seeing around the world. So what is it? Let's talk about it. Yeah. Which is unusual for green because green is usually, um, doesn't really get into the content of things. It's, it's, it's very procedural. Everybody had people yeah. right there, you know? So that was very interesting. No, it's wonderful and very encouraging. And I saw that uh, there was an article in the New York Times about the leader of Hezbollah criticizing the violence. I forget his name, but, you know, it was a full-throated denunciation of these murders. And that uh, al-Sisi in Egypt, the president of Egypt, the mo modernist, if you will, president of Egypt, uh, had a uh, speech to the clerics saying, reform this religion. And that is interesting, too. So Apparently, reform is a no-no word. This is something I learned because it evokes Christianity. So they talk about <laughs> renewal. <laughs> okay, fair enough. We'll take it. <laughs> All right, my dear. Well, thank you so much for... Uh, popping on m and It's always great to have you, and it's always great to hear from you. You take care of yourself. I think that's it for tonight. We're a little bit over time. I appreciate you hanging in there, particularly through the technical break there. And yeah, uh, if we, as integralists, ask ourselves the question, am I Charlie Hebdo? The answer is yes, as long as we realize that we're also the Muslims and we're also the police and we're also the, um, you know, mothers and daughters and um, all of the people that are struggling in these ways. And uh, to the degree that we can feel into their worlds and see things through their eyes and exchange ourselves for others, uh, there's even wonderful meditations for doing this, then we... Uh, evoke a larger space that can hold multiple perspectives. And um, in that space is a wisdom, uh, an intelligence, and a heart that is really new to the cosmos. So we are creating the new grooves that are leading the way. So 
that's my story and I'm sticking with it for another week at least. <laughs> and I again, thank you for listening and we'll see you again, same time, same station next Tuesday night. Jeff Salzman, signing off. <laughs>